You're listening to Fit in Focus, a podcast from Fitbit, where we talk about all things health and wellness, from the science and business of health to what motivates people on their own health journey. Hi, everyone. I'm Eric Friedman, co-founder and CTO of Fitbit. I'm joined by my co-host, Andrew Holing. And today, we're speaking to Dr. Sami abdel Ghaffar, who is a researcher here at Fitbit. Sammy is joining us to talk about all things stress, what it is, how our bodies respond to it, and why that matters for your health. I think it's fair to say that everyone experiences stress. Especially today, stress is more pervasive in our lives than ever. But I don't think people realize that stress isn't only an emotional feeling, it's also physical. And it can have impacts on your health in the long term. We're going to talk to Sammy about the differences between short-term and long-term stress and some tactics to help manage it. Well, I cannot promise you'll be less stressed by the end of this conversation. Hopefully, you'll understand the science behind stress a bit better. Sammy, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to Fit and Focus. So tell us a little bit about yourself prior to Fitbit, and the path that led you to do the work on stress and psychotherapy at Fitbit. Well, um, so my undergraduate degree was in computer science, and I had a minor in psychology. Uh, so I'd been interested in the mind from a while back, and... Uh, Career-wise, I, I started off as a software engineer. So I worked at Xerox and then a startup company called Next Engine, building a desktop 3D scanner, and then a company called Advanced Engine Management. And there I was working on um, high-performance car parts for race cars. So I've had sort of a, a windy path to get where I'm at. Um, and I can't say that uh, when I took that minor in psychology, I had this job in mind, but looking back, it all really does make sense. Um, so I left the world of software engineering uh, in 2007. I wanted to do something more meaningful. And so I started a master's degree in counseling psychology. So I worked at that for a year and then realized, you know, I'm really interested in the mind and, and I want to make a difference, uh, but I don't think the way I'm going to make a difference is through actually doing psychotherapy. So I, I found my way to UC Berkeley and um, I was working in a lab that studies anxiety and emotion. And so my dissertation was looking at the way that the visual system processes emotional stimuli. In other words, the, the first stage in having any sort of emotional response is identifying that there's something in the world external, or it could be internal, like a thought or a memory, but um, oftentimes it's external, uh, that you should have an emotional response to. And so that's why I was interested in, in studying the visual system. It's also uh, the, the best, the, the most well understood part of the brain is the visual system, because it's very concrete in terms of the stimuli that we can give to a person to look at, to record brain activity, to find the correlations that neuroscience is all about. And you mentioned that you had a cognitive neuroscience kind of focus in that. What, what does that mean? What is cognitive neuroscience? Yeah, that's a good question. So cognitive neuroscience, uh, I guess you could trace it back to the beginning of the cognitive revolution. So in the 1950s, there were a lot of people in cybernetics and linguistics that were interested in thinking about the, the brain and the, the mind as an information processing system. And so that's really where the start of artificial intelligence came from. Uh, and that's where the start of cognitive psychology came from. Before that, psychology had been um, pretty dominated by the behaviorists. They were looking at uh, trying to associate um, 
understand the way that animals and humans work by studying their behavior. And they, they just regarded the mind as a black box that was just to be ignored. Um, and so uh, the cognitive revolution started and people began thinking about the mind as something interesting to study again from this perspective of information processing. And so um, cognitive neuroscience takes that a step further and says, we're going we're gonna to look at correlations between uh, different cognitive states, which are things like memory, learning, um, perception, language, uh, and find correlations between those and states of your brain. So using different technologies like uh, an MRI machine to study uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI, which is what I did. Uh, and, but there's, there's many different uh, ways to record brain activity and correlate it with different sorts of cognitive processes. And so uh, when you were doing this, like you were basically watching the brain while, while stressing people out or what, what, what did that involve? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so on campus at UC Berkeley, we have a big MRI machine. And so it's down in the basement of the Lee Kashing building. Uh, so I spent a lot of time down there and uh, we would put people into the scanner and there's a special head coil that we would put on to be able to collect brain activity. Uh, and then there's a whole setup to show them different sorts of stimuli. We, we used pictures in the studies that I was doing. So we showed them pictures that were emotionally evocative. So these are everything from, uh, you know, cute little puppy dogs to uh, mutilated bodies to erotica to, um, you know, sort of endearing social situations um, and everything in between. And then we recorded the brain, their brain activity and we built models of what was happening in the visual cortex according to the different properties of the images that we were showing people. And Sammy, what is stress? How do we define stress? So there's, there's been, stress is a really interesting idea because if you, from one perspective, um, stress and emotion are really just different concepts for the same psychological construct. Um, but if you look back to the ancient Greeks, they were talking about the passions, right? And there's reason and the passions. And um, the whole history of Western thought um, has, has made that differentiation between the passions and reason, where stress is really uh, maybe 19th century, but really 20th century idea. There was a 19th century scientist named Claude Bernard, and he came up with this idea that uh, multicellular organisms like you and me and all mammals um, have an inner world. So there's a whole environment in us that's based in water and uh, that needs to be in, in, in a state called homeostasis, a, a state that was later called homeostasis. Essentially, it's that internal environment um, that our bodies regulate. And this was a really transformative idea. Um, and so they, we regulate our temperature, we regulate the pH of that water. And um, after Claude Bernard came up with this idea, there was a, a Harvard psychologist in the early 20th century named Walter Cannon. And he took that idea one step further. He said, okay, there's, we have this idea of the how. How do we survive in a world that's constantly changing, the temperature changes, the 
the chemicals around us change? Well, we have all these mechanisms to regulate us. And he began finding how those mechanisms regulate us. So he discovered the fight or fight response, which is um, essentially the, when you have a sympathetic nervous system activity response, that is a fight or fight response. And so um, once that idea and mechanism was in place, the idea evolved over the, the whole 20th century. And uh, nowadays, people generally distinguish between physical stress and mental stress. Um, so from a very broad view, stress is when you have some kind of tension in the organism. Um, it could be mental, it could be physical. And it's responding, it's, it's a response to a change in your environment. It's your body's response to maintain homeostasis. From a psychological perspective, you can think about stress as a relationship between the organism and the environment, where the organism, the way the organism appraises the situation, what's happening in the situation, is really what determines stress. So when an organism appraises a situation and says, there's something in the environment that's threatening to me, or there's something in the environment that's unmanageable, I have goals and the resources that I have available to me are not enough to meet those goals. And the, that appraisal of the situation, um, what you're appraising is what is called a stressor, right? And there's different things that can be stressors on you. Can you tell us a little bit about what a stressor is and some examples of stressors for people? Sure. Yeah, that's a really important distinction because when we use that uh, definition of stress as the, the relationship between the organism and the environment, then what we appraise as stressful is what defines a stressor. So what, a, what may be a stressor for one person is not necessarily a stressor for the other person. In other words, different situations uh, can stress one person and not the other person. We're not all stressed by the same things. And so there are some, some really common stressors. Um, you know, if you are, uh, if you have a, a work deadline, you know, let's keep it to the realm of, uh, of work here. When, when you have a, a work deadline that is very manageable, then that is going to be a stressor, but it's generally considered a positive stressor. That deadline might motivate you to, to perform well. And as long as you're feeling okay, you don't feel overwhelmed, you feel like you have the time and the knowledge and the skills to complete your job, then that's really going to be a positive stressor. And that's, it, it's really interesting that positive, that stress can be considered positive because most people think of stress as negative. Uh, but actually, the way that scientists think about stress is that there's positive stress and there's negative stress. Well, you mentioned the kind of idea of appraisal, like you're appraising a situation. That sounds very conscious, like that we are aware of when we're entering a stressful situation, mm -hmm. we're aware of our stress. Is that true? Or like, you know, do you hear about things like PTSD, which comes in much later on? Like, how does that all tie together? How, how much are we aware of what's going on? When you appraise a situation, it's not a conscious process. When you appraise a situation, there's, there's all sorts of genetic factors that go into determining whether or not you appraise a, a situation in a certain way, but there's also a lot of life experience. So we've, we've learned to assign meaning to different situations. And uh, those, the pro that process of assigning meaning is what we call appraisal. And it happens really quickly without you having to even try. And 
you have a response to the situation as a result. Do we all experience stress the same? Or is there many different ways that we can experience stress personally? Like I consider myself someone who can get very anxious in situations that other people seem completely calm and not stressed out in at all. So how do we experience stress differently? Yes, 100%. We can all uh, experience stress differently. And that can mean two different things. So we can be, we can have a stress response to different situations. Or put another way, we, one person might have a stress response to any given situation and another person doesn't. So what stressed us out can change from person to person. And then the specifics of what that stress response looks like can also be different from person to person. So it's really important to distinguish between the stressor, which is the situation that, that you appraise as being unmanageable or threatening, and the stress responses, which are all of the mental and physical changes that occur when you've appraised the situation as stressful in order to help you overcome that situation, right? And so there is a generalized stress response. When you have a, when you have a stress response, you know, your heart rate is always going to go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your blood pressure increases, but there's also specific stress responses to different scenarios or different kinds of emotions, really, because from one perspective, stress and emotion really are the same thing. And so while there's, there is this central core of responses, there's also individual responses based on how you appraise that situation. So even if two people have the same stress or have a, a stress response to the same stressor, what those stress responses are could be different as well. So building on Andrea's questions, so for example, if my wife and I, well, if we had dinner, had people over for dinner again, uh, because we can't do that now, but if I'm cooking a brand new dinner and they're going to arrive in 10 minutes, I actually find that invigorating. Like I really get excited about the pressure and things like that. And my wife can find nothing less enjoyable than that pressure of like, oh my God, my friends are going to be miserable. Uh, biologically, why would we react differently and why would we both feel stressed, but we, what's going on in our bodies? So you asked the question biologically, but I would tend to answer that more from a psychological level, right? Because I think the, the first thing that I would notice or I would, I would assume is happening there is that you're appraising the situation as something that you're, ha- you're having a eustress or a positive stress response. And so I think what's happening there is you're saying they're going to be here in 10 minutes, but I got this. I got this. I have the resources. I know how to cook. If they come and they have to wait another five or 10 minutes, that's fine. I don't, it, it's not a threat to you that they're coming. You have everything you need. You have enough time and you have the knowledge and the skills and the food and the oven and the electricity and the gas and everything that you need to make your dinner. But your wife, I don't know exactly what she was thinking and how she appraised it, but somehow there was, a, a, she determined that we don't have enough of something. We don't have enough time. Or maybe she was worried that they were your guests would judge if she if they arrived and the dinner wasn't ready, or that they would get angry. And she really doesn't like she it it really upsets her when people are angry at her. So there's there's you know a million and one different ways in which she could appraise the situation as negative and and resulting in a a distress response. Uh, But 
what's clear is that you had a eustress response. She had a distress response and uh, you felt like you had it. And that was great. How do you measure stress? Is it something we're even able to measure? Broadly speaking, there are neuroimaging techniques. Um, and so there's functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI, like I mentioned. There is um, EEG and MEG, so electroencephalography and magnetoencephalography. And these are two non-invasive techniques that can let us record ele with electroencephalography. It's measuring the electroactivity uh, on the scalp of your brain, or sorry, on your scalp. Uh, and with magnetoencephalography or MEG, it's measuring the disruptions in the magnetic field. And so both of these things can give us an idea of how your brain state is changing. There, there are also more invasive techniques. So they're literally sticking electrodes into your brain. And so for humans, this is not often done for obvious reasons. I hope um, not. <laughs> <laughs> cutting somebody's skull open is generally avoided when possible. But there are patients who suffer from epilepsy hmm. um, that do need to have part of their brain excised in order to reduce their epileptic seizures because they're, they don't respond to medication. And so scientists, uh, of course, with the consent of the patients that are undergoing these surgeries, because they need to implant big, broad arrays of electrodes in order to find the part of the brain tissue that is suffering the epileptic seizures, um, are able to conduct experiments on these folks. And this is called electrocorticography and, or ECOG. And this allows a, a more direct measure of brain activity. But all, in all of these studies, what we're really doing is saying, we're going to show some stimulus to the subject, and, and whether that's a picture, a sound, a movie, or having them do some sort of task that involves memory or learning or language. Uh, we're, doing, we're, we're stimulating the brain in some way, and we have some hypotheses about how your brain state will change as a result. And then we measure that through these different imaging techniques. And we look for correlations or relationships between that brain activity and the, the sorts of stimuli that we've given to the subject. There are also ways to measure your body's response to stress with wearables like Fitbit. What are the metrics you're able to look at from a Fitbit that would be measuring stress? With, with heart rate and heart rate variability and electrodermal activity, the sympathetic nervous system, which is what is activated when you have a stress response, or one thing that's activated when you have a stress response, um, innervates your heart. It innervates the sweat glands on your skin. And so it, it causes physiological changes when you have a stress response, when your sympathetic nervous system is activated. And so by measuring our heart rate, our heart rate variability, our electrodermal activity, we, we can use these as, as proxies to understand what's happening with your sympathetic nervous system or your parasympathetic nervous system. There's two branches of the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. And both of them are involved in emotion and stress response. The sympathetic nervous system increases activity when you're stressed, and the parasympathetic nervous system decreases activity when you're stressed in general. That's the simplification. There are, it is a complex system, but more or less that's what's happening. And the sympathetic nervous system is known as the fight or flight response. 
And the parasympathetic nervous system is known as the rest and digest response. And is stress only a negative thing or can stress or stress responses be positive for you or positive for your body? So we need stress to survive. There are all, the world is a dangerous place, right? There are all sorts of things that we encounter from day to day where if we were just chilling out, had a you know, nice leisurely heart rate of 64 and didn't really have to move all that much, that lion might come and eat us or something more appropriate for the modern world is that car might, might hit us if we're not paying attention, right? So as we step out onto the street, there are all sorts of demands that the environment places on us. And when those demands are things that we can overcome when we have when we feel like we have the resources whether it's the time or the energy or the skills to be able to overcome those challenges then generally the stress response that we have is going to be a positive one mm-hmm. literally what defines a positive versus a negative stress response is a positive response feels good and is beneficial to us right a negative response uh, is important in that if there's a big challenge, it's going to give us that extra zap of energy to overcome the challenges that we might need to overcome. But it comes at a cost. And while we might have the capacity to have an adrenaline rush for, you know, minutes or hours, if you sustain a stress response over days, you're going to reach an exhaustion point. And once that happens, you you know, the proverbial crash, you have a breakdown, you might need to go sleep for a day or two, you're at higher risk to get sick. A lot of people, I remember when I was in school, I would always push really hard at the end of the semester for my finals, up all night, studying, drinking too much coffee, you know, and then the exams would be over, I would probably go party and celebrate, and then I would need to sleep for three days because I was just so exhausted. I was running on adrenaline, as people say, and that's quite literally what's happening is there's so much adrenaline running through your system uh, that you eventually hit a crash point. And this can have all sorts of negative health outcomes if it remains in a chronic state. Yeah. What are some of the health outcomes that it can be? I've had that exact same thing. I remember in college, I'd get through finals and without fail, I would sleep and feel much better. And I would, at least I thought I would get sick. Absolutely get Mm -hmm. after. Are things like a weakened immune system? What what are some more of the chronic effects on your health that we see from long-term stress? So a weakened immune system actually occurs fairly quickly after that exhaustion phase hits. You're, You're immune system is, is weakened. Uh, when, you sus- when you have a chronic state of stress over weeks or months or even years, there's a lot of negative health outcomes that can occur. So headaches, digestion problems, you can see problems with sleep, you can see um, ulcers uh, can occur, obesity is a negative health outcome associated with stress. Managing that stress is important. Managing that stress is very important. And do people who are accumulating the stress always realize they're accumulating? You know, you mentioned things like exams, like where you know you're stressed. Um, but are people always aware they're accumulating the stress or the stress baggage? I don't think so. Uh, that's a really good point because we tend to normalize to the situation that we're in. In other words, we, we adapt. And if you're in a state of low to moderate chronic stress where 
you have a lot of demands at work, you come home, you have your kids to take care of, you're part of a community. You know, the modern world puts a lot of demands on us. And I think, especially if all of your peers are in a very similar state, it's very easy to think, well, this is normal. This is how everyone is. And not even realize that you're really taxing your body in a major way uh, that can have profound health outcomes down the line. And so I think we, you know, if you've ever walked into a room and there's been a delicious smell because someone's cooking, you'll smell it really strongly when you first walk in. And after, I don't know, three, four, five, ten minutes, you might not even notice the smell anymore. Our, our neural systems adapt. The phenomenon is called adaptation. And so what is a strong stimulus in, in, in its onset, you tend to normalize away, you adapt to. And so oftentimes, if, if we're not really tuned in to what we're feeling inside of our bodies, we can go a long time without recognizing that we're really in this state of stress until things start breaking down. And I was going to say, like, so if I'm adapting to stress, does that mean that it won't then cause something bad to happen or like it's not accumulating in the body you can't measure through other physiological measurements no <laughs> so just because that you've adapted to it in terms of not being able not consciously perceiving it doesn't mean that it's not there anymore and doesn't mean that it's not still having these negative health outcomes or affecting you in a negative way that can lead to these negative health outcomes so uh, definitely this is a case of out of sight but and maybe out of mind, but not out of body, right? It's something that is really important to keep an eye on. Pivot launched a new feature called Stress Management Score that you let a lot of the work on. How is that measuring stress? And what are the physiological indicators that go into it? So there are 12 different metrics that we use in calculating the stress management score. Uh, they come from three different subgroupings or components. Uh, so there are features that look at your exertion balance. In other words, how much have you been, how active have you been uh, over the last day and over the last week? One of the subgroups we call responsiveness, which is really trying to look at these different proxies that I mentioned earlier. So heart rate, heart rate variability, electrodermal activity, they give us a window into what's happening in your sympathetic nervous system. And then finally, uh, we call sleep patterns. So these are metrics that are trying to quantify the quality and the quantity of the sleep that you've gotten, not just last night, but over the last week. And the sleep patterns, you're looking at like, am I getting enough deep sleep? Is, is my sleep being very chopped up, even though I feel like I'm asleep the entire time? Like what's going on in my brain as reflected in my heart while I'm sleeping, right? That's right. So some of the things that we look at are uh, the amount of deep sleep that you've gotten and REM sleep that you've gotten last night. We look at uh, how restless you were last night. So are you tossing and turning a lot or are you sleeping pretty calmly and still? We look at how fragmented your sleep is. So if you're somebody who is uh, pretty dead asleep until the middle of the night where you wake up and go use the bathroom and then you're, you're still again, that's one pattern versus somebody who's getting up, waking up every half an hour or so for, for a bit of time. Um, we also look at your sleep reservoir level. So this is looking at the last week and it's considering how much sleep you've gotten, but also when you've gotten it. 
So we look at we we look at the circadian rhythm of when you're going to sleep every day. So even if you get eight sleep eight hours of sleep a night, which is great, if you're getting it at different times every day, then that's not as ideal as if you have a really regular schedule. How do I use that stress score? What am I supposed to be doing with that? How is it beneficial for me to see that number uh, on the day to day? Yeah, we really envision two different ways of people using the stress score. So the first would be on a day-to-day basis to help you plan for your day. If you wake up in the morning and you have a stress score that is high, which is a good thing, then that means that your body is in pretty good shape. You've gotten a good amount of sleep last night and the last week. Uh, You've been doing a a good balance of moderate exertion and exercise. uh, And it seems like these proxies for sympathetic nervous system activity aren't too high. And so you might want to challenge yourself, go do an extra exercise or start a new project, maybe go socialize and go to happy hour that day. Or, you know, you have a little extra gas in the tank to be able to take on new challenges. But if your stress score is low, which isn't in an ideal situation, uh, then you probably want to take it easy that day. Be kind to yourself. Give yourself a little extra time uh, for rest and relaxation that day. Maybe do a meditation. Uh, try and get to sleep early because your body needs a little rejuvenation. But the, sec- the, the second way that we envisioned using it is to be able to track over time uh, the ways in which the things that you do affect your stress level. So uh, in the stress management experience, we not only have our stress management score, but we also have the capability for you to log your perceived stress level. So this is how you're feeling. While the stress management score is really giving you an idea of what's going on physically in your body. Uh, the stress logs let you say, this is, this is how I'm feeling right now. And then you can look for associations between both your physical levels, your perceived stress levels, and the things that you're doing in your day. The perceived stress levels is so interesting because we talked to a sleep expert on the podcast before, Dr. Michael Grandner, and he said something really similarly about sleep. He said, you know, we can measure so many things. The technology has become so advanced, but really your feelings about your perceived experience with sleep are very important to listen to as well. And it sounds like that's such a big element of stress too. Most definitely. Most definitely. So uh, we have come a long way in, in understanding uh, like the neurological and the physiological bases for stress, but there's still a long ways to go. And the Fitbit is an amazing device, but it is not a brain reading device, right? And so what determines really how you're feeling is what's going on in your brain. There's a lot of things that we can measure that give us some ideas of what's going on in your brain, uh, but the technology is just not there yet to be telling you exactly what you feel. And so uh, that's where meditation can help by giving you more insight into what you're feeling. That practice of paying attention to what you're feeling every day can let you know, it, it can give you a, a better sense. You can essentially gain emotional intelligence. You can gain the capacity to know what you're feeling and know what it means when you're feeling situation A or situation B. And, and so by... I think Fitbit really is doing a great job of differentiating between perceived stress and physical stress and letting you 
capture both. And by having both of those streams of information or data, you can really start to get a fuller picture of what's going on. Because obviously, there are things like we discussed earlier that your body can be undergoing a stress response, but you might not be aware of it. And conversely, you could have some feelings going on uh, that we can't pick up with the, the metrics that we have. And that's just a limitation of the technology. So on the product roadmap is a new product to read my mind is what you're, you're just announcing today on the podcast. Yeah, that's for uh, 2051, fall of 2051. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've got two kids at home. So I've got about 18 years worth of in- intense stress ahead of me. Um, you're in a bad spot, Eric. You're in a bad spot. <laughs> Uh, what, what can I do to, to, to manage my stress? Like, or can I manage my stress other than like sending my kids off to boarding school, which uh, I don't think is something I want to do at this point. I think your kids will appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that we can do to manage our stress. So the way that I think about stress management really is, is twofold. There are, there are the sort of immediate things that we can do in order to build our stress resilience. So I mentioned that the stress score, the stress management score uses, looks at our activity level or exertion balance and looks at sleep patterns. The reason, one of the big reasons that we do this is because both exercise and sleep can build your stress resilience. In other words, they can give you a sort of shield to protect you against stress. So, uh, the way that I look at it is that you you have this sort of threshold for what's going to stress you out. You know, some days you're you've got a really short fuse, and any little thing will set you off, right? Uh, other days you're you're just zen, you're calm in the eye of the storm, and nothing seems to get to you, right? And so when you've slept a lot, when you've gotten an, a moderate amount of exercise, both of those things can help boost your stress resilience and raise the threshold that it's going to take to cause a stress response. So both of those are more immediate things that you can do to help manage your stress. But then there's also working on how reactive you are and how you understand certain situations. So things like meditation over time can help to lower your reactivity and mean that you are able to better manage your emotions your emotion your capacity for regulating your emotions can improve so you know sleep you talked about how it was it's a restorative function um you know that's when the body heals itself why do, why does activity help you know why is that feels like you know if i'm running up a hill that feels like it's stressing my heart you're supposed to work out why is working out help reduce that chronic stress yeah it's sort of counterintuitive and actually exercise is by definition a stressor. When you exercise, your body's releasing more levels of cortisol. Um, and it, in the short term, does cause stress. But in moderate amounts, in the long term, it allows you to have a higher level of stress resilience. You mentioned EDA earlier or electrodermal activity. Our new smartwatch Fitbit Sense has an EDA sensor on device. How does that sensor work and what does it measure? EDA or electrodermal activity is literally, it's, it's looking to measure the amount of electrical conductance from 
across your, your skin. And what causes that to change is these micro sweats or micro waves of, of sweat. Your sympathetic nervous system innervates the sweat glands in your skin. And so when your sympathetic nervous system is firing, your sweat glands, sweat glands release little bits of, of sweat. It's usually not even perceptible to you. If you have really sweaty palms and because you're really nervous, then you'll notice that. But what the electrodermal activity sensor can pick up on are these really subtle differences that give us an idea of how active your sympathetic nervous system is uh, from moment to moment. And so there's really two broad ways that electrodermal activity is measured. One is called skin conductance level, and that's just looking at how the overall conductance changes across time. It's just the overall level. The second one, which is what our Fitbit device measures, is called skin conductance responses, or SCRs. And SCRs are, are looking and saying, every minute, how many spikes in the conductance are there? And those spikes represent times when your sympathetic nervous system is having a spike of activity, quite literally. So you get a number that, you know, might be one response per minute might be five or 10 responses per minute. And what you can see is when you're, you're active in your day, if you were to do one of our EDA sessions, you would see that, you know, you're, it changes from person to person, uh, but your SCR could be say six or seven. Well, by the end of a session of meditation, you've calmed down and your SCR might drop down to one or two or three. So it's really a proxy for your sympathetic nervous system activity, which is active uh, whenever you have an emotional response or a stress response. And, and so, uh, you know, I know you've been under a lot of stress recently as you've been working on that score and all these tooling. And, you know, you joined Fitway and said, surprise, all the fall depends on your research. Um, yeah. How do you manage stress personally? Like, what, what have you done to kind of expunge the stress? Or, am I, or is this going to be a very long one-on-one session at some point later on? <laughs> well, uh, I have definitely gotten better with exercising. Exercise is such a key thing. And, you know, I've, I've thought more about as we're in the age of COVID right now, and I've been working from home since the beginning of March. Um, while there are definitely, you know, quite a few challenges associated work with working from home, I think um, it's actually come at a pretty good time for me personally, because I had an hour commute one way to work. And so I have an extra two hours of the day and I've been using those to get better sleep and to exercise. So I'm almost every day I'm taking a good 30, 45 minute walk, uh, three times a week. I'm trying to do, uh, uh, some kind of weight training in my backyard. And I do, I don't have a formal meditation practice, but I think I'm a pretty self-reflective person and I really do value understanding what's going on with me. What are the things that trigger me and upset me? What are the things that bring me joy and, and let me sort of uh, flourish, really? So I, I do try and spend some time most days, think, you know, just being with myself for at least 10 or 15, 20 minutes and checking in. Hopefully this podcast is bringing you more joy than stress. Uh, you know, as we, as we start to wrap up, uh, are there things that you would love to just share with our listeners that uh, they might that I might not know to ask? I guess one thing that I would really want to say is stress management is not a goal. I really think it's a journey. And it's something that I 
you know, stress management and just general, you know, wellness and mental health, I think are, they're really more of a life choice than just something to check off your to-do list, you know, just like with nutrition, right? There, there are those fad diets out there that, you know, you can, you can follow them and, and lose some weight. But if you don't really change your, your lifestyle and your relationship to how you eat, you're not going to keep that weight off. It's going to come back. And I think the same thing goes with, with stress management, with mental well-being, just in general, is that it's a commitment that you have to make to yourself. And, you know, somebody told me once that the way they think about mental health is the way they think about physical health, right? So sometimes we're sick and sometimes we're not. And it's not the case that we're always mentally ill or that we're always physically ill, right? We go, we go in and out. So when there are periods of high stress, we might have more of a burden on us and might not be so well. And it's in those moments that it's even more important that we keep up with our, with our exercise habits, with our sleep habits, our nutrition habits. Those are the moments that are really going to try you and that are the hardest to keep those up. But I think those are the moments where it's most important. That's really interesting. Like it's almost like waking up on the wrong side of bed is like waking up with a cold. I never really thought about that before. So uh, thank you. Um, that's all I have. I think you did an awesome job. I, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, Sammy. This is really fun. I thank you. I love learning about stress and really think I can manage my stress better every time I talk to you about it. So thank you. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. And that's the journey.